the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast, where we take a fortnightly look at the darker corners of the Marvel Universe. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And Trey, listen, do you hear it? What what am I listening for? Nothing. We're alone. It's just you and me. We don't have a guest this time. Wow. That's, like, it's been a while. (laughs) Since I could hold my head up hot. And it's been a while since I... No, no, God damn it! Sorry, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I'm in a program. But part of the reason for that is we don't actually have enough issues for a guest this episode. Right, right, because we are we've reached a a culmination, as it were. We've we we we've, re- we've done it. We've reached the end of Inferno. That's right, folks. We've reached the end of our summer-long Inferno crossover. And I say summer-long, though it's the middle of October. That's right. It, it's it been a long road. Getting from there to here. It's been a long time. But my time is No! No, we did it again! Oh, damn it. Oh, uh, you're welcome, Shay. You're welcome. Oh, no, he isn't. But so we are covering the last few issues that deal with Marvel's Inferno crossover from 1998. We are looking at X Factor Annual number four from 1989. We are looking at X Factor 40 number well from 1989, and we are looking yep. at What If. Number six from well, nineteen eighty nine. That's right. And and now, so I'll just go ahead and say this. I think we said it way back when we started this very long series back in was it June? I think it was early June. It might have been May, but yeah. <laughs> I, I'm looking at it now. June seventh was when our our first Inferno episode dropped. Wow, wow. So we probably recorded it in May. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. But it dropped early June. It is possible to quibble here. There are other issues sort of coming out around the time of the issues we're talking about that could be considered Inferno-related. Of, of course, as we talked about last time, the the Cloak and Dagger storyline weirdly continues without being directly connected to, to Inferno. There's probably some New Mutant stuff that does the same mm-hmm. But we've got to find a point that we can say it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think given the narrative through line that we've been following over the course of this event, the issues we're talking about today most clearly give it an ending. And lo, there shall be an ending. 
<laughs> but let's go ahead. Marvel doesn't do that much anymore. No. Mar- Marvel should start using end low in their titles. More. They should. They should. And enter. Enter the title. You know? <laughs> anyway. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And we're going to come back with our look at X-Factor Annual number four. Well, part of it after. What? Like a third of it? Like, yeah, yeah, a yeah third like a third of it. After these messages. Enter the messages! <laughs> you have accessed the Supervisory Tactical Organization for Regulation of Metahumans. File 3C. Amazona, also known as Mighty Woman. There is apparently a hidden civilization deep in the Antarctic, a portion of that most inhospitable continent on Earth that is hostile to even the bravest of explorers. Amazona comes from this civilization, inspired by reports of the Owl and Atoman to venture into our world and help protect it. Even though the media sometimes call her the Mighty Woman, those like me who work side by side with her know her by that one name. She is regal, courageous, fierce, and guarded. She has shared very little of her life or information about her nation of Yamara with others, not even her fellow paragons. This results in a woman who is a born warrior, a staunch ally, and a fierce protector, who I still have problems trusting. Paragons of Earth is an upcoming comic book project written by Thomas DJ and Percival Constantine, with pencils by Eric Johns and inks, colors, and letters by Constantine. The crowdfunding campaign features some great incentives, including exclusive pinups by Johns, Chris Kempe, and others, and the chance to get original artwork. Please go to crowdfunder.com slash paragonscomic, all one word, for more details and to sign up. Paragons of Earth. They have powers undreamt of. And enemies unplanned for. John Belushi, Jake Blue. Walk through party in the county jail. Dan Aykroyd, Elwood Blues, the Blues Brothers. They smell bad. You're such a disappointing pair. You contemptible pig. You better pray the police get to him before we do. Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, The Blues Brothers, a musical comedy rated R. Now play at a theater near you. Welcome back to Believers. Our first issue in this episode is X Factor Annual number four. Cover date on this one is 1989 because, you know, it's an annual. And we are in the cover here. We have Jean Grey for head being held below water by a Tuma. It's not a Tuma. Like, no, no, it's definitely a Tuma. He is holding <laughs> Jean's head underwater and Beast is. Beast is not happy about no, it. No, Beast is trying to stop Jean from, you know, being drowned by a Tuma. Plus, Inferno Aftermath and Doctor Doom versus Magneto. Enough said. Well, lovely listeners, I, if you were here for the Atuma coverage, I'm sorry. We are not talking about that story. It's not Atuma at all. Right. 
This is not an Atlantis Attacks series. We are never doing Atlantis Attacks, just to be clear here. (laughs) It is actually hilarious to me that this annual, which ties into both Atlantis Attacks and Inferno, Atlantis Attacks is the one that gets the cover banner. (laughs) Uh, Like, Inferno doesn't even get its logo in the, the text blurb. Nope. Nope, it's, you know, Inferno Aftermath. Not not even like Inferno in its Inferno font, right? That's what I'm saying. It's not even like the fiery letters. It's just in bold print. Yeah, yep, yeah. Doctor Doom versus Magneto got special lettering, and Inferno did not. No, I'm wondering if they're 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 worried the listeners have a little bit of Inferno fatigue. Uh, mm. So it's just, it's totally possible. The hype has... And, and, and obviously they are ready to pivot full force into Atlantis Attacks. Yeah, because that's going to be a well-remembered <laughs> crossover. I mean, it's 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 a perfectly fine cover. I, th- I believe you said it was John Byrne doing the pencils here? Yeah, Byrne did the cover, and I think he did that first segment with... He, he wrote and drew the, the Atuma segment with inks by Simonson. Mm-hmm. Which, hey, John Byrne and Walt Simonson, that's a pretty good team. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Byrne also penciled and inked the Doom Magneto story, but he didn't write it. That's a Ralph Macchio story. Gotcha. But we're not talking about those stories. We're just we're just talking about the nah. Inferno one. We are looking at Inferno Aftermath. Writer is Mark Grunwald. Yeah. Uh, all hail the keeper of continuity. All hail. Penciler is Jim Fern. Inks by Joe Rubenstein. Colors by Gregory Wright. Joe Rosen is on letters. Bob Harris is editor. And Tom DeFalco is editor-in-chief. And, Trey, this is the story that David Gallagher spoiled for us. <laughs> right, right. He he sort of set up the... the Or, or he, he told us what the punchline is on this one. Yeah. Yeah, this is... this Guys, for those of you who are there for our David Gallagher episode, if you weren't there, go check it out. It was a really good episode, I think. Um, you know, humble brag. Uh, but we have, well, basically, the Blues Brothers... Uh, as FBI agents, the Blues Bros. FBI agents, um, Jacob Farber and his associate Elwood McNulty, who are there investigating the aftermath of Inferno, and they're wandering the streets of New York, and they're inve- they're interviewing some of the people we saw. For example, they interview the dentist who got absorbed by his own equipment and turned into a monster dentist demon. We've got. The scientist from the Rainbow Room, remember them? Who got absorbed by the elevator. Oh, yeah. The, yep. the, not, the, the, the Ghostbusters knockoffs. Yeah, the not quite the Ghostbusters. Then we have the denizens of the Daily Bugle talking about you know th- themselves being attacked by demons. And this is where we learn that the demons leave behind no photographic evidence. Even though I'm right. pretty sure people watch the demons on television. Probably, I'm not. But maybe that was hip, maybe that was demonic projection. You know, yeah, like I guess, I guess maybe if it was live, it wouldn't do anything. Right. But like once they go back to check the recordings, it's like nope, no recordings. Right, it'd just be blank screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to catch it. Maybe they're able to appear in the moment, but the very act of their appearing ruins the recording mechanism, so that you can't go back and play it. Exactly, again. you got to catch it live because the streaming rights are murder for demons. <laughs> right, right. It's like like moonlighting up until literally this week. Yeah, or Svenguli episodes. Yep, yep. So they then talk to Jarvis a little bit, and they're like, the, the Avengers are out, you know, 
helping people. Maybe you should go find them in the field. And of course, they find the greatest Avenger of them all. Or as Elwood calls him, did he say Gilgamesh? Right, right. Go ahead. No, go for it, go for it. Gilgamesh is an idiot and doesn't tell them much. Uh, they briefly see Thor overhead, but they're like, no thanks. I just soon not quote anybody who claims to be a god either. <laughs> so they finally get X-Factor on the phone, and X-Factor, as we see here, have decided the best thing to do is not tell humanity that they've been invaded by demons, because it's going to play all kinds of hell with organized faith and religions. And so... They tell them that it was a result of a hypno-ray, an alien, basically an alien hypno-ray that basically made everybody think that they were seeing demons, because that is apparently more plausible than demons from another dimension. <laughs> and that's the end. Okay, so first things first. You're a craftsman? Uh, this, <laughs> this, this book is what, cover date's October 89 coming out, what, sometime in June of 89? Mm-hmm. The summer of Batman. Right, right. Jake and Elwood, the FBI agents? Yes. Pre-existing characters. This is not their first yeah. appearance. Yeah, David Gallagher told us that. They appear, well, they appear throughout the issues of Captain America leading up to John Walker becoming Captain America. Interesting. That Grunewald created them for, it's like issues 329 to 333 of Captain America. <laughs> and then for some reason, they have a cameo in Avengers 286, which is a Roger Stern, Ralph Macchio issue. Nice. But I think this is their final appearance. I mean, I imagine so the rights got complicated. My head, my head, my head canon is that this whole Inferno cover up thing didn't go over well with their bosses and they were canned. Yeah. I will say about the art, like, it's good art. It is. It's, it's it really is. I like the way Beast looks here. The, the main characters look very much like Belushi and Aykroyd. Yes, they do. Really good representations. Without being caricatures. Right. They are good representations. Um, They devote an entire two pages to making fun of Gilgamesh, which I approve of. They really do. Um, And part of this... it. It's not just like it's not even like a, just a Blues Brothers riff either. It's a Dragnet riff as well. Yes, which makes sense because wasn't this around the time Aykroyd did the Dragnet movie? That makes sense. Yeah, that that I think that checks out because the, a, a, anytime they go somewhere, it's like forty five. Yeah, forty five. Dragnet Dragnet was eighty seven. Yeah, anytime they go somewhere, it's like forty five minutes later. Forty five minutes later. Yep. Like yep. It's very Joe Friday, Jack Webb sort of thing. And even the specificity when he calls X Factor, he's like, I need to hear from them in two hours. And he keeps saying two hours. And then it's like six hours later. <laughs> it's a it's a fun little story. And it, I like when they're having their their conference that Beast just can't sit still. That he's like hanging from the rafters and stuff. And Beast looks really good here. Like his face is good. It's a good beast. It's a good beast. It. It's a good middle ground between, like, this era of X-Factor Beast and the Perez version from Avengers. Like, it's sort of in between those two. Yeah. It is the best Beast we get this episode. Absolutely. We'll we'll talk. A- Trust me. I got things to say about art coming up. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, we're going to get flamed for this. Probably. 
I, I do like the twist at the end with the the demon reading the paper. Yeah, that's a nice little touch. Yeah, no, it, it, there, there's not much to it. It really, this is very much an epilogue. Very much so, but it's a fun little epilogue. It is, and and it, it establishes something that I don't think was entirely clear from the previous issues, which is that basically all of it's been undone. That no, none of the humans actually died. To quote the Ninth Doctor, everyone lives. Everybody lives, Rose. Just this once. Everybody lives. Yes, right. So, so in terms of, it's a very Grunwald story in that it clarifies continuity and 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 reestablishes what the current status quo is. Yep, it it's a fun little story. Yeah, I'm kind of sad we haven't seen this character since then. Yeah, and I again, I don't think it's not like we've been told something happened to them. They could theoretically show up again. Mm-hmm. It would be kind of funny if instead it was an older Elwood with a guy who's a caricature of John Goodman. Ah, nice. One thing I will just this is not story related, but I do really like the Bogdanov Milgram like two page pinup that comes right after the story. I don't have it. I only have the Inferno uh, story. It's my background. Okay. Oh, that is a good one. My, my it's it sort of cropped. God damn, those New Mutants uniforms are so beige. They are. I just put the full image in the chat. That is a good one. Yeah. But yes, New Mutants uniforms not great, but X Factor looks good. You even got Power Pack zooming around in the background. Very nice. Very nice. It is a choice to put Mopey Archangel right in the middle of the the image. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. They, they, they want their wing characters together. Warren and a horse. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I, I I love, I kind of love um, Rusty and Skids, like, just over to the side there, just being totally oblivious to anyone else. Literally in their own little world. Yep. Uh, but no, it, it, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice pinup for this moment in the story, because all of these characters have just all crossed over with each other. Yep. Yep. And so it's fun to actually see them all together. It is. This little corner of the X-verse, as it were. And also, I don't think anything else we have this week is by Bogdanov. So I just wanted to call it out, because if you've got Bogdanov art, you should call it out. We like Bogdanov on this show. We're well established on this. But I think with that, we're going to go ahead and take another quick break. And we'll return with X-Factor number 40, right after these messages. In 1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983... Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. 
Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? So how long have you been drawing comic books? So I was about seven years old, little kid. What would your parents think about it? They hated it. They hated it. Oh, yeah. After I, I got a job and they saw that you can make a living out of third day, you'll hear no complaints anymore. And you created X-Force? Mm -hmm. So where is the drawing of? This is the Spike Man. And what's this right here? This is the camera on top of your head that will record the wrongdoings of others. So Rob, have you had any formal art training? No. Just uh, a lot of imagination, I think. Wait, so, so I say it and then look down? Or just open it and say it? Fly button? Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our next issue for today is X-Factor Volume 1, number 40. Cover date on this is May 1989. The writer is Louis Simonson. The penciler, in a first for this show, I think, is Rob Liefeld. Inks by Al Milgram. Colors by Tom Vincent. Letters by Joe Rosen. And editor is Bob Harris. Editor-in-chief, Tom DeFalco. Okay, so... We open at the funeral for Madeline Pryor, mm -hmm. where the only people attending are the members of X-Factor. As they leave the funeral, the team goes back to ship, and they're at this point preoccupied with returning all of these children that they've accumulated to their proper homes, that, that they've made some arrangement with the U.S. government to hand off the, the babies and children that they've rescued over the course of the Inferno event. Unbeknownst to them, Nanny and Orphan Maker are watching on a monitor from Nanny's ship high above. And Nanny intends to ambush X-Factor as soon as they are away from the defenses of their ship. And we cut back to X-Factor, who on the ship are greeted by the combination of X-Terminators and Jean's parents who, again, are healthy and alive because the, the murderous violence of Inferno didn't really happen. And the Greys just immediately take to baby Nate. They claim him as their own grandson because, after all, Madeline was just a genetic copy anyway. Not sure they'll hold up legally, but okay. Um, right, right. But that, that's, what they, that's what they're going with. Yeah. And Leech, Artie, and Wizkid sort of indicate their willingness to go back to school that they need to learn to read and write and stuff, as WizKid puts it. So they take off. At one point, Beast has, like, three babies strapped to his back, which is kind of funny. The older members of the Exterminators apparently are not going back to school because they missed too many days of the summer session and were told that it was just not worth it. More likely, the violence and explosions that they wrought upon the school have led to them not being invited back. Yeah... And Beast promises to put in a good word for Rusty. Because remember, he actually broke out of federal custody while awaiting trial. And so is technically a one. It begins to leave the ship. They, they take one of their jets down to Washington to return the babies to the government. Mm -hmm. When Nanny strikes and Orphan Maker jumps onto the top of the X-Factor's jet 
Cyclops, in a moment of extreme stupidity, fires his optic blast through the roof of the ship, creating an opening for Orphan Maker to jump through. Nanny follows behind. There's a lot of fighting. Uh, For a while, Nanny and Orphan Maker seem to have the upper hand. And the Avenging Angel of Death, who is not calling himself Archangel at this point, I don't think. No. I think he's still Death, is able to slash through some of Nanny's armor which causes a human scream to erupt, which terrifies Death because he thought he was fighting a robot. Yeah. And thus could use lethal force. Nanny's control over her ship is disrupted, and it looks like Nanny's ship, holding on to the X-Factor's jet, is about to crash into the tip of the Washington Monument, which seems bad. Jean Grey uses the full extent of her telekinetic abilities to bring both ships to a fairly gentle landing on the ground below, avoiding the monument, and we get a little bit of backstory. Orphan Maker explains that Nanny is a person, not a robot, that she was a scientist working in cybernetic technology for an organization called The Right. We know them. And, yes, and The Right turned her into this egg-shaped cyborg so that she would have to work for them forever. But... Driven to the brink of, brink of madness, she was able to escape, and she and Orphan Maker have been together ever since. Um, and Jean is able to more or less read Nanny's mind enough to figure out where the other children are. Remember the lost boys and girls that Jean and Cyclops fought in a previous issue, yep. including Jean's cousins, niece and nephew. I forget what the relation is. I think it's cousins. Niece and nephew. Niece and nephew. Okay. So the the two missing gray children yeah. <laughs> um, are found. They have no memory of Jean. Brainwashing is still in effect. Yep. But X-Factor is able to, to, to rescue them. Nanny and Orphan Maker disappear in a cloud of smoke. And... Smoke bombs. Right, basically. And the former Brotherhood, which, remember, now work for the U.S. government, show up to claim the missing children. Freedom Force. Yep, Freedom Force. I was blanking on their name because I see them and I just immediately think Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That makes sense. Jean lifts X-Factor and the children back into ship and they tell Rusty that he's been told that he doesn't have to go back to prison just yet because basically his his help in saving New York from the Inferno has been recognized by the U.S. government, even though we've just been told the official story from the U.S. government is that Inferno did not happen. Yeah. He helped contain the mass hallucination, as it were. Sure, yes. Joey and Galen, the two missing gray children, do remember their grandparents, and so they at least are are given a semi-happy ending there. And we're left with Jean looking worried. At least I assume that expression is supposed to be worried. And she says that home is where they belong. And we're promised that in the next New Mutants, the Exterminators will join the team. Yep. All right, should we talk about it? Okay, so I want I want to front load something here. <laughs> because I do think I need to I need to, to to introduce a little bit of nuance here. I don't hate Rob Liefeld as an artist. I actually like some things he's done. It is worth noting. This is one of the very first things he ever did for Marvel. In this month, he had this issue and a Spider-Man annual both come out and quibble about which one he technically did first. But they both came out in the same month. So this is the first or second book that Rob Liefeld ever did art for for Marvel. So this is like very young 
very rough Rob Liefeld. So even judging by the standards of what his art looks like, I don't think we can say this is his best. Pre-Levi Jeans. Absolutely. This is before he was famous. Yeah. That said, these are some of the worst facial expressions I've ever seen in a comic. Like, so much is bad about this. Now, there is some good. His panel layouts are good. Yes, yes. Even some of the action, like the fight scene is fine. Yeah. You know, it's it's not the best fight scene ever, but like he has a command of space and geography and orientation, like all the things that are important for following a fight scene. It's legible. I can follow what's going on. It's just anytime there's a close up on a character, the faces are bad. Or anytime that character has a body. Yeah. <laughs> He, he is already, at this stage, mostly avoiding feet as much as possible. For, for the, those are listeners who are not aware, although how you be, could be listening to a comics podcast and not know this, I'm not quite sure. Reif, Rob Liefeld's feet look a bit like if somebody drew a banana in a sock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he can get away with it, that's what he does. Um, he actually can't get away with that with Beast because Beast doesn't wear shoes. Yeah. And so except for one or two panels, he usually just obscures Beast's feet by having something in front of them. Yeah. And his Beast. It's rough. It's real rough. For one thing, I'm fairly certain he's not wearing any clothes. He he looks nude for most of – so he's, he's wearing a tux initially or a suit. He's wearing a suit to the funeral. But once he's in his trunks, the trunks are colored the exact same shade of blue as his fur. Yep. And the way like there's there's a there is a there's a page. What page is this? It is. Is it the lounging one? One, two, three. It, it, it's the one where he's in the like playgirl Burt Reynolds pose. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yep. Yep. The Deadpool mimic. So body well. hair and all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I think he's a little bit less body hair than Burt. <laughs> Weirdly, Beast's <laughs> face is fine. Like he's the one face that Liefeld kind of gets. But but the body is weird. Yeah. You want to talk about faces. Gene's mother. Cyclops looks like this in every panel. Screenshotting. Hold on. <laughs> okay, I have it. <laughs> That's actually difficult to hold. <laughs> it's not a comfortable expression, considering that Cyclops has it for literally the entire issue. Nope. But yes, Gene's mother looks terrible. Like, it looks like her face is melting Raiders of the Lost Ark style as we're watching her. Honestly, the, these early scenes where everyone is in civilian clothes and there's lots of close-ups because it's all conversation, it reminds me of some of the worst pages of McFarlane that we saw earlier in the event. Yeah. Like, there's a similar looseness. Either somebody told him or he is intentionally trying to do McFarlane. Well, that that's the popular style. Like, McFarlane is—so is, that's the thing. We are at the point where McFarlane has gotten big. And Liefeld is just starting, right? Mm -hmm. And and Liefeld is trying to copy what is currently popular. He's not looking backward to like he's not doing his Ramita or or his Perez or whatever. He's trying to do what the hot new thing is. Yeah. And again, it it makes me wish we had more Bogdanov. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do wonder again. This is this is the first month of Liefeld at Marvel, and shortly after this, he goes to New Mutants. I wonder if this was in some way, his tryout for New Mutants. It's possible. It's possible. Just, like, the volume of hair, especially Jean Grey's hair. Like, I, I want to know what, like, conditioner she's using. Like, what volumizer she's it, it, using. Because, like... Yeah. 
just wow. She's she's got more hair than Medusa. Although it seems to run in the family because because her mom is kind of similar. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but OK. So, again, story wise, this is fine. You know, it, it's Louis Simonson. Yes. It's 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 tying up the loose ends of X Factor's part of the Inferno story, which really is the spine of Inferno. Right. We get a little bit of closure with Madeline Pryor who, of course, is dead forever, cremated. She will never be seen again. Nope. Sinister has been defeated forever. He was it blasted into a million pieces, never will be seen again. When are we doing Dark Web, web by the way? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, or, or Sins of Sinister, you could ask. I could. <laughs> but you won't. Nope. <laughs> we, get, we, we tie up some loose ends with the Exterminators, at least insofar as setting up for what they'll do next. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Almost all of the story is in the first few pages and the very ending. And the rest is just a big fight scene. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. I guess I guess we finally get an actual origin or explanation for what Nanny's deal is. Yes. Which, okay, fine. Right, right. I don't know that we necessarily needed that, but but we have it. For what it's worth, she continues appearing. She, she jumps over to Uncanny X-Men after this. So. There's a panel so in that storyline does continue. Yeah, where Jean is supposed to look all sad and dramatic, but she just looks frightening. Uh-huh. It's on the last page. Yes. Oh, is it the one I was talking about? Oh, it's right before that. Yeah, where she's in shadow. Yes. Yeah. Again, early Liefeld. He's not quite figured out shading. Just okay. I, I will also say this again, be, being fair and and being honest that I do I do okay I. I don't hate Liefeld as an artist. Liefeld's art is made or broken by who inks it. Mm. Um, and I don't know that, that especially this early stage of Liefeld, I don't know that Al Milgram's inking is doing him any favors. Jesus Christ, is Bob, is Blob undead here? <laughs> Blob is a deadite, Trey. Uh, we've not gotten to Marvel Zombies yet. No, but like, this is obviously a precursor oh, to it. That close up? Yes. Blob is an obvious no, deadite. You know what it looks like? Is it looks like he started by tracing a photograph of Jack Nicholson in Batman. <laughs> look look at those cheekbones. Yeah. Yeah. Like wow. And he's he's got no pupils or iris. Like his eyes are just blank. Yep. Like a Batman mask. Yep. I mean, we could nitpick all day. We could. We really could. <laughs> but I do want to say the story is fine. Perfectly fine. And and I see glimpses of what would become a more consistent version of Liefeld's art style. This is not his best work. It's 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 very much early. Yeah. But the lounging beast is just bad. Oh, so bad. We are never getting Chad Bowers back on the show. I again, I don't dislike Liefeld. I even don't dislike all of his heroes reborn Captain America. It's a fascinating book. It's not always successful, but it's fascinating. Fair. Fair. And, you know, his 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 new mutants going into X-Force run, like, there's good stuff in there. There you go. So, But this is this is definitely a rough start, I think. So, Chad, please come back on the show. We don't all hate you. <laughs> and if you really want, you could punch me in the, in the punch me or something, you know, for 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 <laughs> for the for the creative team's honor. Uh, oh, OK. Yes, absolutely. And this is not pandering. I promise. I even if it wasn't by Chad, 
the the Deadpool, Bad Blood, and Batter Blood actually are are good examples of Liefeld's art. Modern inking and coloring do wonders for his art. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, I in part of this is like the way that older comics are colored and even inked don't do favors. You know, maybe Liefeld's just ahead of his time. The, in some ways, I think he is. Now, yes, he, there are certain cheats and shortcuts he's always taken and still does. The thing we were joking about with the feet, sometimes his facial expressions are like, you know, th- there's a certain, I don't want to say off model, but a lot of times you look at a Liefeld character and he's a little bit off model, you know, in terms of a house style. But I do think his, I think his best stuff really is after inking and coloring shifted to newer technologies, quality of paper improved, like all of those sort of technical things made his work look better. But this is still rough. So uh, is Banana and a Soccer episode title? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> anyway. And, no, and low, a Banana in a Sock. Yes! It's your Banana in a Sock! <laughs> well, that just sounds dirty. <laughs> Us? Never. <laughs> Considering that we we began the series with was it hot summers summer or something? <laughs> oh, hot, no, hot 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 boys summers was where we started. Yeah, and obviously we're ending it with hot blob summer. <laughs> Did you throw up a little bit? <laughs> I, I I still had the page with the close up of him open. <laughs> I looked back over to it and it frightened uh. me. <laughs> oh, deadite blob would also be a possible title. Okay, I want to end saying something nice. There is a, because I've been generalizing about facial expressions, there's a close-up of Warren right after he's attacked Nanny. It's the page where the ship is about to hit the Washington Monument. The close-up of his facial expression there is actually very good. When he realizes that, oh, I've been hitting a human being. Yes. That is maybe the best close-up shot of the entire issue. Okay. Because there's a real sense of emotion there. There aren't any weird shadows or shading distorting the image. It's just a good close-up. Sorry, I wanted to end on something nice. No, this, it, you're a good person, Trey. And it, <laughs> at least one of us has to be. <laughs> but with that said, we're going to serve our corporate overlords and go to a quick message. And we'll be right back with What If number six, right after these messages. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. 
Want to make something of it? Hello, amigo. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad You can put them in a pie Any way you want to eat them It's impossible to beat them But bananas like the climate of the very, very tropical equator So you should never put bananas in the refrigerator To have bananas that are fully ripe you must be absolutely sure To take them home and let them ripen at no temperature Welcome back to Believers, and I feel I need to clarify something from our previous segment. We don't actually have corporate overlords. All our messages, <laughs> all, all of our messages are other podcasters we we enjoy, we we like to help, help promote them, but also any commercials you hear are not actual sponsors of the show. They are ads we found on the internet. That said, if you are interested in being our corporate overlord oh, yeah. and you have money, yeah. we will take it. Be my business daddy, please. Blue Apron, <laughs> my wife, I will work for a free subscription. Like, my wife be thrilled. Thrilled. I, I would I would happily be sponsored by Mubi, the, the streaming service, or, or, let's see, any of those various job search websites that are always advertising on podcasts. See, you're already doing a good job, because I had no idea what movie was. I thought you were talking about the bone vampire from Star Trek Lower Decks for a second there. Oh, no, that's Moopsie. 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 He's just so cute. He is. I really... It it is a crime that the week that episode dropped, Paramount did not have a plush Moopsie ready to go. It it gives levels of Disney not having Baby Yoda merch ready. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Just insane. Wait, who would win in a fight between Moopsie and a Tribble? I don't think we know if Tribbles have bones. I don't think they do. Are we talking classic original Tribble or the animated Tribbles that can grow? Ooh, that's a good question. Also, there there are the attack Tribbles from Picard. Oh, that's right. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep. Ooh. I think it'd be a tough one. Guys, forget the what if. The whole rest of the episode is about this. So let's look at strategies here. <laughs> that's our what yeah, if right there. Wow. Oh, that's... <laughs> mm. Anyway, Marvel's what if number six... Ask the immortal question, what if the X-Men lost Inferno? And our cover here shows a demonic Wolverine standing over Kitty Pride, while a pirate cosplaying Doctor Strange approaches in the background. And I say pirate cosplaying because he's got an eye patch. Right. Fun trivia. This cover, I believe, was inked by Terry Austin, who wrote... The issue of Cloak and Dagger we talked about. Hey, he does a better job here. <laughs> I think he just inked the cover. I don't think he did anything on the interiors. Gotcha. 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 Writer on this one is Danny Fingeroff. Penciler is Ron Lim. Inker is Keith Williams. Colorist is Tom Vincent. Letterer is Gary Fields. Editor is Craig Anderson. Tom DeFalco is Editor-in-Chief. 
So our story picks up at the top of the Empire State Building, where after exiling the demon Nastir, the X-Men and X-Factor combined forces must battle the combined forces of Sim and the Goblin Queen. Um, The combined forces of the two are easily able to paralyze the, the Marvel Mutants, eliminate Jean Grey, and finally sacrifice Christopher Summers. It's Christopher Nathaniel. Nathaniel. So, in the course of this event, Madeline names him Nate. Okay. I believe. Because she makes the crack about Scott hating that name. Madeline sacrifices her own child, opening the gates of Inferno forever. We cut to a few weeks later where a now demonic lapdog Wolverine is escorting some scrumptious human morsels to an internment camp where there'll be a all-you-can-eat demon buffet. The Watcher then appears to tell us, oh, this isn't how you remember things? Well, that's because this is an alternate universe, and this is what if. What up? I'm the Watcher, (laughs) y'all! He then tells us what happened in the regular continuity, which, if you don't know, I mean, go back and listen to our previous episodes, but reveals in this world, Sim was able to grab the soul taker no, soul, soul sword. sword and use it to return himself back to earth where he's able to team up with the goblin queen and it turns the battle well towards crap basically we then go to the federal reserve building which because gold never, no longer has any value in this world is the hideout for humanity's last line of defense led by Doctor Strange and various mystics from the Marvel Universe. We have our old friend Jennifer Kale there. We have Hellstrom. We have Dakimer. Dakimer? We have Shaman. Shaman. Uh, Dakim. Dakim the Enchanter. Yeah, Dakim the Enchanter. We've got Baron Mordo. We've got Sargali. Margali. Margali. Margali is our... Sardos. Sardos. I'm not familiar with her, but okay. Me either. <clears throat> That's um. it. We then move on to find out in the next room we have an impromptu group of Avengers with Thor, the Captain, still Steve Rogers, the Human Torch, She-Hulk, Kitty Pride, and Spider-Man waiting around to be sent on a mission by the Magicians. She-Hulk goes to talk to Magicians about what's going on when all of a sudden Demonic Wolverine and Demonic Hulk because <laughs> they have a Hulk, Trey. They, they do have a Hulk. And he seems to be a Grey Hulk. Grey Hulk, yeah, because that, that's right for this era. That, that's the era. Yeah, yeah. Hulk, that's, that's right for the era. Because bursting in through the wall, Jennifer She-Hulk is a bit stunned to see a demonic version of her cousin. There's some fighty fight there. Hulk snaps She-Hulk's neck. Hmm? Really, like, like one-handed snap, too. This would not fly in modern comics. It would. Yeah, probably. No. No. You have... Wolverine easily taking out the captain. Yep. We then have Wolverine taking out Spider-Man and several of the magicians before they are before Thor is able to because Sim reveals that like he's going to absorb all the magic they're throwing at him and just turn it back at them a hundredfold. Thor's like, I say thee nay. And absorbs the magics with the power of Mjolnir. But of course, that makes Mjolnir go all boomy boom, and that kills Thor. 
But it does allow the others to escape, although they're missing some magicians here because I just realized, like, we don't see Jennifer Kale, we don't see Hellstrom after the. Well, Jennifer Kale dies, but we don't see some of the other magicians, like Hellstrom and that girl we didn't know who was and that wizard dude. We don't see them again, right. even though they're not called out as being dead. I guess we're going to assume they're dead. I guess maybe they could have been caught up in the explosion. Yeah, Mordu, uh, Doctor Strange, Kitty Pride, and Human Torch escape to the press room of the Daily Bugle, where we find out is their secondary hiding place. Meanwhile, at Fat Four Freedoms Plaza, we find out that a newly demonic Doctor Doom and Reed Richards are working on a machine to carry the energies of Inferno to other dimensions. So the stakes got just got raised, y'all. Meanwhile, Doctor Strange is looking around for some power to help them defeat Inferno, and he finds the mannequin form of Rachel Summers, who, if you remember from those Excalibur issues, which I really like those Excalibur issues, got turned into a mannequin mm-hmm. by the energies of Inferno. Doctor Strange awakens Rachel and brings her back to the Daily Bugle press room. There's a teary reunion of Kitty. Read into that what you will, Internet, because I know you will. And then there's a bit of strategy before the demon hordes break in again. They beat the crap out of Human Torch. And as a final sacrifice, he basically goes Nova, providing a distraction needed for Doctor Strange to use Rachel to summon the Phoenix. He did. Human Torch then dies off panel. Like, they say, I'm going to finish off this torch. And they're like, ah, crack. Yes. Like, but he dies off panel. It's kind of, kind of stupid. But considering how explicit so much of the other violence was, yeah, it's. Mm, if this was kill count, we'd be very. That'd be the lamest kill, I think. Yeah. Anyway, there's a mental battle between Rachel and Madeline over control of the Phoenix. Uh, meanwhile, Wolverine's about to sneak up on Doctor Strange before Kitty diverts his blow. Wolverine slashes at her, killing her, which apparently is a fridge moment because the death of Kitty awakens Wolverine's good inner side, which I feel like we've seen before in What If. The death of Kitty awakening the good version of Wolverine. Yep, yep. Turns out that the reason the demons were able to find them was Mordru had summoned them, realizing they were the winning side, but he actually uses the opportunity to steal the Soul Sword and try to bring the power of Inferno to himself. Wolverine, though now, I guess, reformed, makes quick work of him, but it's a final act. Mordru uses mystic flames to burn Wolverine to a skeleton. An adamantium coated skeleton, yes, but a skeleton. Yep. But Madeline uses this distraction to gain control of the Phoenix Force, and it looks like all is lost before the possessed skeleton of Wolverine, possessed by the demon stem, stabs her in the back. As you kind of knew he would eventually. Just not so yep. inventively. Such an inventive knife. <laughs> we then have a seeming face-off between possessed skeleton Wolverine and the Phoenix. But as you might expect, the Phoenix makes quick work of him blasting away both the skeleton and stem. The Phoenix then goes to space where she meets up with the Living Tribunal, which apparently is a thing they've been expecting. I'm not sure why, but it's been it's been foreshadowed throughout the story. And the Living Tribunal's like, hey, you've cleansed the Earth. This is good. You need to go off into space now. And we then return to Earth where we find out the cleansing power of the Phoenix 
has returned it to basically the caveman days. It, it seems like basically all remnants of modern civilization and technology have been wiped out, but that a handful of people were able to survive. We, speaking of a handful of people, we go to a cave where a baby is born, and the mother says, I will name this child after his father, Jonathan Storm. And we find out the mother is Alicia. I call bullshit, Trey. This baby is not she's, green. She's half scroll, This right? baby is like, not the, green. The baby is half scroll. The baby is right. not green. This should be a green baby. Okay, so do we, do we know what a half-human, half-scroll looks like? Yes. We know what a half-Cree, half-scroll looks like. Fantastic Five from the MC2 universe. Right, Th- Their right. son is half-scroll, and his natural form right. is a slight is a slight green Johnny Storm with pointy ears. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, you're right. But that, that it had not yet been established that Alicia was a scroll. Which kind of just cheapens this whole ending. A little bit. A little bit. What you can always go back to is this is an alternate universe. It's an alternate timeline. In this version, she wasn't. So the point of divergence is earlier. Right. The point of divergence is Alicia wasn't replaced by a scroll during Secret Wars. Probably. Probably. <sighs> but that just makes it more upsetting. I'm sorry. Because the whole Alicia Mary Giant Storm thing is upsetting in the first place. And, like, the retcon of Alicia was a scroll. It was, you know, bullshit, but at least, okay, fine. It saves the character of Alicia from just bed-hopping right. the Fantastic Four. But... Right. Uh, so, a couple continuity notes here. Okay. Um, Doctor Strange having an eye patch is actually not part of the Divergent timeline. At this point in comics, Doctor Strange had an eye patch. Nice. And the bit of of what he's up to... As Inferno is happening, more or less lines up with what he was up to in the main universe. We never actually stopped and asked during all of this weird <laughs> magic stuff. Where the hell is Doctor Strange? The Sorcerer Supreme <laughs> it never came up. Why would he show up? What the Sorcerer Supreme? Why would right, he show up? Right. <laughs> so he had just launched a new title as Inferno was starting, called Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme. It actually has an issue that it's not an Inferno tie-in. But it does name drop Inferno on the cover. Um, there's a blurb on it that says, as if Inferno wasn't enough, more demons over New York. Wow. Um, the reason Doctor Strange doesn't get involved is in the midst of Inferno, as the what if suggests, he is actually locked in astral battle with Dormammu to regain control of his body. That's a long astral battle. Dormammu had taken. Con- well, I mean, if you so in terms of publishing time, yes. But remember, Inferno itself didn't take all that long. <laughs> but but yeah, so so for the actual height of Inferno, it seems like Dormammu actually had control over Doctor Strange's body, and so that's why Doctor Strange doesn't show up. Gotcha, gotcha. And 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 the what if sort of connects to that, like it it, it sort of indicates that that battle happened in that reality too. So what do we think of this issue? So you can tell that it's. 1989, because of how heavily Wolverine is featured. Yes. When he is not really that important a part of Inferno. No. I don't know. Like, it's that weird thing of a character shows up, I get excited to see what the alternate reality version of that character will do, and they immediately die. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Captain America is killed too quickly. Spider-Man is killed too quickly. She-Hulk is definitely killed too quickly. Yes. And I know 
And, and and part of the problem is limited page count. Yeah. They honestly wasted too many pages just sort of recapping Inferno. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't do that nowadays. They'd be just like, go pick up this trade. Yeah, you, so you'd have an inside cover that has a brief summary. And you'd maybe have a page or even partial page setting things up. Yeah. Art's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a fan of Ron Lim. Uh, yeah. He does good work. He here. did some of Infinity Gauntlet, right? Yeah, yeah. He's best known yeah. for his cosmic characters in Run on Sun, Silver Surfer. He did some Captain America, which is rather good, and things okay. like that. He this is our our first run them. I'm pretty sure he did that Christmas, the Captain America Christmas story we liked so much. That sounds right. That sounds which, right. Which where he fought, he tracks down Bucky's family. He, he, you mentioned Silver Surfer. He did what the Engelhart Silver Surfer. Don't ask me to quote things on Silver Surfer, man. Well, it looks like he's bounced on and off of Silver Surfer here and there. Yeah. But, um, but it, it, the issue numbers I'm seeing suggest Engelhart. I'm pretty sure he was the artist on that Silver Surfer Green Lantern crossover with Ron Mars. Okay, so he did some of the Ron Mars stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. Real, Really, really good stuff. Yeah. So it looks like it looks like Lim started with Engelhart and then stayed on Surfer when Ron Mars took over. Yeah, that's a good run. Yeah, it is. Uh, but but yeah, I'll say the and some of this is just sort of the nature of comics printing in the late '80s. Some of the action scenes are a little bit busy. Yeah, like there's almost too much detail in some of the panels, given how small the panel is. Okay. Like I'm, I'm looking at the page where Hulk bursts through the wall, and it, it, I don't know. It, it's I don't know if it's because the inks are heavy or what, but it just the the image feels very busy. The inks are very heavy on this issue. Yeah, like it, it, yeah. I think that's what I'm seeing is the heavy inks. It makes the issue look muddy. There yeah. are a few places yeah. where they're not an like, issue, like that big splash page of New York with Wolverine gar- guiding the uh, the sh- the fresh shipment of humans to the camp. Yeah. That's a real good one. That's a really good one. But I think especially as the panels get smaller and there's more figures on the, in the panel, yep. it, the inks somehow get heavier and heavier. Like there's some of the panels of Spider-Man, like his suit almost looks brown because of how heavy the inks are and the, the black overpowering the red. Yep. Yep. And I'm not sure why, but oh well. Yeah, I, I guess that's just Keith Williams style. I don't know Keith Williams especially well as an inker. No. Looks like he did a bunch of Marvel stuff, though. Yeah. And, you know, maybe just... Because, just, like, there are a few po- points in here where, like, things are allowed to expand where it's really good. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a shot of Sim's yeah. face there. Like, this, that's really good. But then, like, when we... The, the, stuff with, <clears throat> the stuff with Strange and Phoenix together is mostly very good. It makes... In terms of the, the visuals. It, what it almost looks like is, like... It would look really good if blown up. Yeah. But when shrunk yeah. down to comic page size, it just starts feeling really crowded. Yeah. It's almost like you want the treasury edition. <laughs> the, the treasury edition of this obscure what if issue. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> oh, fun times. But yeah, no, it's it's fun. It's fine. It's it's the 80s. So you got to have a Wolverine skeleton. Yeah. Man, Wolverine skeleton's got a lot of play in what if you're right. I actually really love the panels of the reanimated skeleton. Yes. Those are great. Yeah. That that was fun. Although nowadays, like, he would start regenerating from that. 
Right, right. There would they would residual DNA like clinging to the the adamantium would start regrowing. Yeah, which is what's that term for that? Oh yeah, bullshit. <laughs> right, right. No, that's a thing you can get away with with in a Deadpool comic, not a Wolverine. Yeah, comic. yeah. He's not Lobo. Nope. All by the way, R.I.P. to the great Keith Giffen. We haven't talked about this yet. Yeah, he we we lost him. Yeah, yeah. A couple days ago. Very sad. Very sad. But you know. This issue wasn't. I, I had fun with it. I, no. I, I'm, yeah. it, it, I, I Do we really need the Living Tribunal showing up at the That's end? That's what I asked. Do, do, I don't think we do. Like, why does Living Tribunal show up? So they set it up early on that, that basically the unbalance in cosmic forces that Sim and Madeline are causing by using magic to take over the world is drawing the attention of the Living Tribunal. I guess, and that res- to restore that balance, you would have to destroy the Earth. Yeah, I guess they're doing it in order to give the reason a, a reason for the Phoenix Force to leave at the end of the issue. Yeah, that too. But but I, I think the idea is that by by creating a permanent connection between Earth and Limbo, that it's disrupted cosmic forces. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we needed that. I think it would have just been enough for the Phoenix Force to leave at the end of the issue especially since that suggests that this should have come up in regular inferno yes it should at have. some point as a concern and it was not brought up once <laughs> but then dr strange wasn't there to bring it up so this is true this is true i mean like because honestly any given member of the new mutants would be like the living who now <laughs> <laughs> is that a candy bar you get at the airport <sighs> but that but that is like a whole other like again between that page and the taking two or three pages at the beginning to recap Inferno, like they could have given more time to some of these characters that have brief appearances by reducing some of those extraneous elements. She-Hulk, Captain America, Spider-Man. Yeah, just I don't think Spider-Man gets a line in the entire story. Uh, doesn't seem like it. Nor does Captain America. Uh, he says "arg" when he's stabbed. Okay, so he gets the Charlie Brown line there. Sorry, Trey. Right, right. When he gets electrode, you can, like, see Wolverine's fist pushing through his chest. Yep, but nope, Captain America doesn't get a line. Nope. Human Torch, surprisingly heavily featured. And that's only so he can get the payoff at the end with Alicia and the baby. Right, right. Which, again, is cheapened Um, by the whole regular continuity revolution. Where we really got cheated is that Dr. Druid gets nothing to do. Who? Dr. Druid. Who? Former Avenger, Dr. Druid. Not ringing any bells. <laughs> Everyone's favorite master of the mystic arts. Okay, Trey, we, we don't need your Mary Sue f- fanfic in right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jennifer Kale is there, Hellstorm is there. Like, people that, in the Tomb of Ideas universe, are incredibly important to what's going on in Marvel. Yeah! Like... <laughs> Katie, you're 1989, what if... <laughs> like, Shaman is there just to die immediately. Yeah. It's... it's mm. Also, Thor goes down surprisingly easily. I don't think that would kill him, honestly. No, no. He's survived worse than that. He really has, including Mjolnir blowing up in his hand. Yep, yep, yep. The a thing I like so, about this issue is it brings up divergent parts of what was going on in, in Inferno. Like, the whole thing of Excalibur, it brings that in, which... Yeah, it makes it matter Yes, in a way that it... it it was much more of a side story in the main event. Yes. I still liked it. Because honest, because honestly, yes. Like, if there's yet another person connected to the Phoenix Force who 
theoretically would have some connection to both Jean and Madeline. Like that ought to have there more should have been made of that. Yeah. But they were spread thin and had already gone very long in that event. So I understand it not. And also Claremont wanted to use it to joke on the crossover. This is true. This is very true. I still don't really care for Phoenix's Excalibur era costume. The spiky, the spiky red outfit. Not yeah. Fan. Yeah. Not my favorite. That's yeah, fine. It's a little weirdly. It's a little plain. Yeah. And between the red of the costume and the red of her hair, like she tends to, especially in small panels that are heavily inked, mm-hmm. she tends to just be a big blob of red. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy it. Like, yeah, no, it's a good story. I, I, it, it so it it does a good job, like you said, of just encompassing the whole crossover as a whole. So, speaking of a whole crossover, what do we think of it? We've reached the end of Inferno, Trey. Yeah. What do we think of it? It is huge. It's... <laughs> like, it really is kind of hard to wrap your head around how big it is. It is really um, big. I do think the through line of, it, of X Factor stands out as a highlight. Yes. I think that's probably the most consistent part because, I mean, it had roughly the same creative team throughout. At the very least, Louis Simonson was there throughout. Mm-hmm. Okay, let, let, talking sort of core books involved. X-Factor was probably my favorite. Okay. X-Terminators was the next best. Uncanny X-Men after that. The New Mutant stuff really didn't do much for me. That's fair. And I think it's just, I'm just not into that era of New Mutants. Like, I didn't really feel a connection to those characters going into it. And the story didn't really give me a reason to feel attached to them in the moment. So, that, but that's that's just sort of my feelings. Other than that, I guess the other thing to sort of talk about would be favorite tie Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, and <clears throat> and I think you know I'm going to say this, and I already know you're going to disagree, yep. but my favorites are the Daredevil yep, issues. Yep, I knew that was weird. Yeah, I knew that you were going to say that. And, and, like, that's perfectly fine. I get what you like about them. I just didn't like them, but more power no, to, more power to you. That said, I think there's a strong honorable mention for the Jarvis issue of Avengers, the the 299. Okay. I'll give you that be- just as a fun just as a fun one-shot set during the event. Yes. I would agree with that. And a what the heck follow-up issue in 300. Yeah, the, the, uh, no more Gilgamesh ever. No more Gilgamesh ever. He was much better in the movie. <laughs> he was. He was. He, he was, was much right. better in the movie, which I, you're, you're uh, correct. Which I think is because they just abandoned everything about him in the, from the comics. Pretty much. Um, yes. I would for top award on tie-ins. I got to give it to the Spider-Man stuff. The the through line of Spider-Man and the Hobgoblin and Harry Osborn. That was good stuff. Honestly, similar to Daredevil. The Spider books took the approach of let's tell one ongoing story about Spider-Man that carries through this event. Mm-hmm. Like there actually is sort of a narrative similarity there. I, I think the difference is art style. And I would argue, and I, the reason I picked Daredevil over Spider-Man is I like the Ramita Jr. Daredevil way more than I like the McFarlane issues of Spider-Man. That's fair. I really like the story and the subplots with the characters in Spider-Man. So, oh, absolutely, and and the stuff with Hobgoblin's a lot of fun. It is, and and in terms of broader Marvel continuity, incredibly important. Yes, Jason McAdell, like that is a turning point for both in that book and for that character. Jason McAdell's a fucking idiot. <laughs> he is, and and that continues to be like a big deal in stories set in New York 
for literally years after. Yes. Like, it's like, what, late 90s when that finally gets resolved? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, like, I, I, I saw somebody posted some jack-o'-lantern appearances on social media, and Jason McAdoo's always mm. just been a fucking idiot. Yes. Yes, he has. Like, I really, really like the jack-o'-lantern outfit and the jack-o'-lantern uh-huh. theme. I think the costume is great. Mackendale, the guy in the costume, is an idiot. And it sort of became a running gag in the comics that, like, it almost doesn't even matter who's wearing the jack-o'-lantern costume. Like, there's been, what, like, five jack-o'-lanterns at this point? One of them had connections to, like, the Spirit of Vengeance, I think, at one point, or... Like had a mystical tie-in. Um, one of them had a mis- had had magic powers. Yeah, yeah. One of them, he, he was the brother of the second jack o' lantern, and he actually had made a deal with a demon, sort of like Mackendale did. So he actually turned into a creature with the head of a flaming jack o' lantern. Gotcha, gotcha. Another one, Daniel Burkhart. He was jack o' lantern three. He was more of a, a Mysterio type guy. He used, like, special effects stuff and, and hallucinations and things. Mm-hmm. And then the, the most recent one, who I don't think the identity has been revealed, has gone old school and uses a jet-powered broomstick, like the Ditko Green Goblin. Ooh, nice. Nice. So, I think for my bottom tier of the tie-ins, yeah. I gotta go Fantastic Four. Yes. Fantastic Four book was bad. Like, I just think that's a symptom of the Fantastic Four book at this time. It was just... I, in fact, I, I think it's fair to say the Fantastic Four book and Avengers 300 are bad for the same reasons. Not the iconic versions of these of these teams. And uh, makeups of the teams that just do not make sense. Yeah. Like, when Scott Lang replaced Reed Richards a few years down the line from this, that made yeah. sense. Luke Cage or She-Hulk replaced the thing. Right. That made sense. Or Black Panther and Storm replaced Reed and Sue. Yep. In the DeFalco era when Namor was hanging around. Right. Because Reed was missing. Right. Even, like, Crystal or Medusa come in for a little bit. Or... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, in the 70s, they were around a bunch. The classic example, She-Hulk re- re- replaces the thing. Yep. 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 Even, even the short-lived new Fantastic Four. Like... In story, that made sense. Yeah. We need to talk about that. And has since become kind of, yeah, and sense has become kind of a running gag, but but it made sense in the moment. Yeah. That team was just so weird. And it 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 brings down their tie-in issues to the point where most of one of the tie-in issues isn't even really an Inferno tie-in. Mm-hmm. It just has Inferno on the cover yep. because God please buy this book, please, 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 please. Right. Right. We right. We don't know what we're doing with this title, but please buy it. Yeah. And just all of the stuff with Kang was just bad. Yeah, I, and I, I'm saying that as a big Kang fanboy. Sure. It's just I don't shoehorning a sci-fi villain into a supernatural event just didn't make much sense. I, Doctor Doom would have made more sense. Oh, yeah. Also, a little bit of a throwback to our what if issue. Bullshit on Doctor Doom falling so quickly. Yeah, yeah. At least in Marvel Zombies, we get to see the huge freaking showdown with Doom. Right, right. And and I'm sorry, but all it takes is Shadow Cat dying and Wolverine snaps out of it. But you can force Doctor Doom to work with Reed Richards <laughs> and he's okay with it. Richards! I don't buy Would that. Would you like some tea? Right. No, they should be at each other's throats, even under demonic possession. Yes. 
Yes, like at least little snide remarks to one another. Like right, like it is a truth of the Marvel universe that Doom and Reed always hate each other. Although under all circumstances. You know that classic panel where Doctor Doom corrects Spider Man about Star Trek? It was Sulu who steers yes. the ship. I always yes. like the the headcanon that it's Reed Richards who introduces Doctor Doom to Star Trek. Yes. Yes. And that they used to watch it together <laughs> as roommates. Which only works because of sliding time scale, because in the original Lee Kirby run, Star Trek debuted in the midst of Fantastic Four running. Yeah, but... But sliding time sliding scale. Sliding time scale, yeah. And Captain, notice the chronometers. They've started backward. <laughs> I just like the idea of Reed just showing Doctor Doom tapes of TOS on... Yes. In, like, their dorm room. It's like, why, why is... No, just watch, just watch. It's... it's but... That design design does not make sense. No, just watch it. It's fine. <laughs> uh. And and then all the weird time travel shenanigans happen, and Doom is like, well, that's that gives me an idea. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh. Um, but yeah, so what what we missed out on, um, again, because it wasn't really a tie-in, was How do we not read this? <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't on any of the reading lists. No, but like it ties into Inferno. Not really. I, I skimmed it. It doesn't. It's, it should have. They, mi- they, <laughs> they have, missed yes. the opportunity there. The only tie-ins happen through footnotes. Ah, oh, come on. It's not even a notable creative team. It's Peter B. Gillis, Richard Case, inks by Randy Emberlin, colors by Bob Sharon. Like, I don't know. Carl Potts edited. Carl Potts is the only name on these <laughs> credits I recognize. For our listeners who cannot see what um, I'm looking at here, it's Dormammu in Doctor Strange's body above the city of New York, demons dancing around him. So, and it's the tagline we talked about earlier, as if Inferno was enough, more demons over New York. And it's a great cover. It's a great cover. And it looks like it should be an Inferno tie-in. But it's not technically yep. an Inferno tie-in, which again makes no sense. That's a Kevin Nolan cover. It's good. Yeah, but but yeah, no. Apparently, that's like Doctor Strange had a brand new ongoing as Inferno was happening, and they chose not to ex- to completely tie it in. Just makes no damn sense. Like that would have been easy Very way to weird. get people to go buy a Doctor Strange ongoing. And as Inferno continued, I think he was in the midst of a story with like some former defenders. Like I think he and Valkyrie and the ghost of King Arthur was involved. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I would love to read that. <laughs> and like, so someday we'll do some defenders. So stuff. we can't do like the first few issues of that, but we get the entirety of the exterminators mini series in this crossover. Exterminators was good. Though. It was, it was mainly, but so I'll put it this way. Mutant Misadventures of Cloak and Dagger was an Inferno crossover, and this was not. That's one we left out of our not-very-good crossover tie-ins. Yeah, because it's so forgettable. Right. Like, right. It, it's just not. It just... Yep, yep. Yep. But no, Inferno as an event... It's epic. I'm glad I read it, because it, it's, it is epic. It is, honestly, I don't know that it's one that I could bring myself to say I definitely want to reread this again soon because it's such an undertaking. It really to is. Reread it. it really is an undertaking. And it's it. not like it's not like you could even say, "Well, I'll just read the core books," because even that is so expansive. Yep. It really is sort of the epitome of a line wide crossover. Yeah. And, 
in a way that that in a way that 90s crossovers weren't necessarily like in the 90s crossover events became more focused around specific characters you know like like death of superman was basically just the core superman books plus or minus a handful of justice league issues however i would totally read death of superman again because man that's a good crossover yeah, yeah. W- with a lot of people from this event showing up as creative team you're right uh, i would say i would say part of that is with the marvel crossover specifically they start moving very much towards the this is the crossover title it is branded right. as the title for example infinity right. gauntlet right you get a mini series yep. and then there are tie-ins outside of that yep but we're not going to take over a book for so and so number of months and mm-hmm. this is that book for those months. Right, right. Whereas here, it took over not just one book, but it took over X-Factor, X-Men, New Mutants. Like It took over like three or four titles as main event story, in addition to tying into all the other books. I think the only time that continues to happen in Marvel is the X-Titles. Seems like we it. get... Executioner's Song, we get Age of Apocalypse, we get Onslaught. Actually, Onslaught might be the last time it happens in the Marvel Universe proper. Yeah, Onslaught into Heroes Reborn, into Heroes Return. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I mean, so I guess, did Maximum Carnage have a core miniseries, or was that just sort of spread out through the Spider-Books? I think there was a core issue, like a core one-shot issue, kind of like how they had X-Men Alpha with... That's the other thing they do is they do the bookend one shots to sort of indicate here's where it starts. Here's where it ends. Yeah. And that's something that that still happens like like Spider-Verse, for instance, the first Spider-Verse event took over all of the spider titles. Yep. But then also there was a core Spider-Verse book. There was the Edge of Spider-Verse set uh, series of one shots. Uh, There was a Scarlet Spiders miniseries. There was like a spinoff featuring the web warriors. Like that's one of that genuinely feels like a combination of contemporary crossover with this sprawling eighties style crossover. Yeah. And there is something fun. There is, there's something to be said for, okay, I'm going to read this crossover. There's this checklist. I love when there's an official checklist, like a a checklist with a reading order on there. Go read this, yep. then go read this, then go read this. Hurry, kids! So issues are selling out. That's that's yep. fun. Yeah, and, and, and but the best ones are. It, it, I think this is where comics publishers struggle: is you've got to hit a sweet spot where if you read everything, that is a rewarding experience for the completionists. Yeah, but if you just want to read the titles you already like, that has to be a rewarding experience too. Yeah. And that's that's a hard balance to strike. I think this this mini this this event overall does a pretty good job of that. Except as we said, there were some titles that were already struggling going into the event, and this event does them no favors. I wonder how rewarded we'll feel when we read Dark Web. I you know I'm genuinely curious. <laughs> I I haven't read any of it. Is the thing? Yeah, but I f- I, I skipped it. I, I f- we're gonna have to do it sooner rather than later. I think. Yeah. To to. To make it in any way topical. But we're not going to do it right away because next episode, Trey, it's our 100th episode. That's right. We've hit a a centennial milestone. Right. So, guys, we're going to do something a little bit different from our usual release schedule. Right. 
as as you know, this episode is a little bit late. It's coming out on the 18th. But our next episode, rather than coming out on where it would have come out on the 25th, is actually going to come out on Halloween Day, which is our that's, that's our right. anniversary. Yeah. Our show debuted on a Wednesday, October 31st. And so don't ask me what whenever year. possible, we don't ask me what year. No. <laughs> what, what even is time? <laughs> I, I, I uh, can't remember who was president. So <laughs> it was 2018 for what it's worth. Oh, no, I don't want to remember who was president. So our episode is going to be coming out on Tuesday, October 31st, which is, of course, Halloween. That's right. And we thought that we would make our 100th episode, our anniversary special, something of a fun celebration of Halloween in comics. Yep, yep. We're going to parade! It's the Rutland Halloween Parade Saga, is what I'm calling it. Yep, <laughs> yep. We are we are traveling across universes here, looking at both Marvel and DC. In these kind of weird crossover comics, there aren't quite crossover comics, but are taking place at the same event. Right, and, and the creative teams of the comics were friends with each other, and knew that they were happening in both books simultaneously. So you get these kind of tongue-in-cheek nods to each other. Exactly. So if you want to follow along, your homework is... Amazing Adventures, number 16. Justice League of America, number 103. And Thor, number 207. As well as various other tie-ins, which if you want to read those, are... Avengers 83 and Batman 237. Those are sort of preludes, you might say. Yeah, yeah. So we just thought it'd be a fun little come down from our inferno-induced high. Yeah, we, we've done months and months and months of the same core titles covering the same event. This is both kind of a, a palate cleanser, a refresh, but it's also just a chance to enjoy the spooky season. Exactly. So... I hope you'll join us for that. And of course, we want to thank the many guests who joined us for this epic journey. Jack Rodeau, Ryan Doze, Drew Edwards, Chad Bowers, David Gallagher, Barry Reese. And of course, you, our lovely listeners, for sticking in there with us for this really Herculean task. Yeah. If you want to tell us what you thought of Inferno... Please, please do. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at our email address. It's tombofideas at gmail.com. We are, of course, on the social media. Most of our social media handles are at Tomb of Ideas. We're on Blue Sky, at Tomb of Ideas. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. We're on threads, at Tomb of Ideas. And we are on Instagram, at Tomb of Ideas. I can't think of any other social medias, Trey. No, but on any of those things, including just good old-fashioned Gmail, let us know what you thought of Inferno. What are your favorite moments in the crossover? What tie-ins stood out to you? We talked about our favorites. We'd love to hear yours. Yeah. And, and you know, if, if we get something interesting, we'll read it on air. Very much so. Uh, of course, we are proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group, which means you'll find our entire back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. As we're recording this, they are in the midst of their Cineween programming. So in terms of podcasts and articles, we are celebrating the spooky season all over Cinepunks. So check out some great stuff like Horror Business, Cinema Smorgasbord, 
Twitch of the Death Nerve, and much, much more. Mmm, tasty. Unlike, you know, candy corn. I love candy corn. You monster. And and the little mellow cream pumpkins? It's great. (sighs) Until next time, to believers. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Lovers, Excelsior! <laughs>